0: Hello, hello, and welcome to So Curious presented by the Franklin Institute. I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills. And I am the boy Bay, we're your hosts. And this season of So Curious is all about the science behind mental health. Later on, we're chatting with a social worker to learn more about how we deal with everyday emotions.
1: But first, we're gonna sit down with Dr. Jayatri Das to talk about the biology behind emotions. What is happening in our bodies when we feel things? Mm. But real quick, Kirsten. How are you feeling right now right this second
0: oh um okay i'm feeling hungry and um my stomach hurts but i'm so full um <laughs> and i'm also feeling super sleepy but i'm honestly in a pretty good mood as of the last like maybe 10
1: minutes how are you feeling Bae? Uh a little uh buzzed but <laughs>
0: <laughs> had a couple drinks before no no, no but, but
1: like 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 energy buzz energy buzz buzzed uh, on, yeah. buzz on life buzzed on life i'm high on life <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. Well, then let's transition into our favorite segment, body of knowledge. We are joined by Dr. Jayatri Das, chief bioscientist at the Franklin Institute. And so we are going to pick her brain a little bit. This is my favorite segment because I never mind asking Jayatri the really stupid questions. I love that. (laughs) That It's always good to be back with you guys. You make me feel comfortable (laughs) enough to not feel like my questions are stupid. So let's start off with Jayatri, why do we feel feelings?
2: It's so funny that you started with that question, because you both know that my background is in evolutionary biology. Mm -hmm. And so in biology, whenever we ask why, my first instinct is to think about evolution. Like, what do we know from, you know, the history of life, you know, from looking at other animals, other organisms to help us understand what we see today? And man, that's really hard when it comes to emotions and feelings because we can't ask other animals how they
0: feel.
1: <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. you could. Yeah. Don't know what kind of like results you'll get, but <laughs> I'm sure a lot of us ask our cats, like, mm-hmm. what's going on man? Yeah. Um, well, let, let me ask Like, what is the Rube Goldberg machine thing happening inside of us that makes us, you know, have these physical things? Yeah, ha- yeah, like, yeah. G- like getting sweaty or turning red when we have these strong emotions. What's happening inside of us?
2: Yeah, it's a good way to think about that as kind of this chain reaction thing, right? Because when we think about what are emotions? Um, We often define them as these brain circuits that actually help us respond to our environment. So what are these external stimuli that we're getting from the world around us and how do they activate what we call action programs inside our body? So when you think about emotions like disgust or fear or sadness or joy, we can think about something outside of us as activating that particular emotion. And then, Kirsten, to get back to your original question, Mm -hmm. is like, why do we feel feelings? Scientists define feelings as these mental experiences of those body states. Uh, And so being able to capture that mental state allows us to actually learn when things are out of balance and how to fix it. Right, by characterizing you know, each of these states, you know, our bodies learn, oh, okay, well, when I feel fear, <laughs> mm-hmm. this is this set of body responses that I start to sense. and Your
1: action program.
2: It, your action <laughs> program, <laughs> exactly. <I like> <laughs> um, and this is what I do to bring that back under control. There's a fancy word called homeostasis.
1: Love it. Mm-hmm. I <laughs> it's like, like that already. 50 cent
2: word for the day. Yeah. <laughs> Which is this idea of your kind of baseline state of balance in your body. And so whenever you're kind of knocked out of that homeostasis, you have to respond to figure out how to get back. And so by characterizing these feelings and thinking about how they are associated with certain, you know, stimuli, then it's an easy way for your body to say, okay, this happened, I feel this, this is how I get
0: back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is, like, interesting to me how there's, I don't know if they have different terms, but there's, like, when you have an emotion and then it gives you a physical reaction, and then the inverse, when something physically happens to your body and it gives you, you know, I'm hungry and suddenly I am the angriest person or... The first day it's been nice out in so long and I'm suddenly in an amazing mood. My body doesn't feel freezing cold, you know, whatever. And it's like they go both ways. And I
1: love what you brought up earlier about like evolution and focusing on that. Is, Is emotions a part of our like survival toolkit? Is that how we survive as humans?
2: Absolutely. So when we think about this relationship between your brain and the body, Scientists can look at brain structures in other animals, so even though we can't ask them (laughs) how you're feeling, (laughs) Um, we can look at areas of the brain that occur across different types of animals. And so when you look at things like the brainstem, Right? Like that's part of your brain that controls some of your basic physiological functions like, you know, your breathing, things like that. Uh, and so you see that part of the brain occurring in lots of different animals. Um, and especially when you think about some of these survival mechanisms like you're referring to, Bay, of like fear and stress, you know, that's where some of that function is regulated. But then in humans, and primates in general, but humans in particular, you know, we have this whole outer surface of the brain called the cerebral cortex that also has this level of processing that kind of helps us modulate kind of what's going on at that more primal level. And so that's kind of this, you know, when we think about fight or flight, for instance, you have that initial reaction, and then you have this higher level of processing that says, no, 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 that's just your neighbor's dog barking at you. It's not a wild animal jumping out of the trees. And so you know, let's let's calm down again. get back to that homeostasis. Uh, and so, you know, even within the brain, you have these different systems um, that are kind of helping you regulate that relationship between your brain and your body. But even things like sadness, right? There are mm. physiological symptoms of sadness. Like, you know, higher blood pressure or thinking about, you know, your heart rhythm getting out of whack. You know, even the idea of crying, like shedding tears, mm-hmm. right? That's a biological response.
0: Yeah. I in never moment, think about it like
1: that. You no, know, in this moment, I'm like, wow, the Philadelphia Eagles have taken me through such emotional <laughs> I know. I'm like, highs <laughs> and oh lows. My gosh. I like, I've done all of this, watching the, games. The
0: emotional relationship we have with them. Go birds. <laughs> but that's a good point,
2: though, because... You also just bring that up in terms of the cultural context Mm -hmm. in which we feel emotions, Mm -hmm. right? And this is something that scientists study a lot in how our culture influences both how we perceive and how we express emotions.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of my most common physiological responses that I notice is I know the Phillies were in the World Series. This was a huge, I'm a huge Philly sports fan. And I noticed more in those couple days getting the chills, like on my arms, you know, when like we would have a crazy home run and the whole stadium's losing it. And I'm like, I'm not even there. Why do I have the chills? And it's that feeling you get from being like, Oh, that was exciting. (laughs) It's like, why do just my arms feel that? You know, (laughs) like, where does that come from?
2: And even just the difference in response from different people.
1: Right. I wanted to ask before we get out of here, like, what is the landscape right now in emotional corrective drugs? And what are some of the the research being conducted in that area?
2: Mm. Well, one of the fascinating things is that when you think about, like, the chemical functions in our brain it's really hard to study them because we don't really have a good way of knowing when those things are happening, right? Because we don't have instantaneous abilities to monitor how the chemicals in our brain are changing. And in the past, uh, when we look at electrical stimulation of our brain, because our brain uses both electrical and chemical signaling, the problem with looking at the electrical stimulation is that we couldn't figure out where it was happening mm. right so he didn't really have the perfect way to look at it and so more recently there's been a new technique called optogenetics that's been um, developed and it really i love these means... terms yeah
1: action program <laughs> yeah. Optogenetics.
2: we're getting all sciencey here yeah. right <laughs> i just need like
1: a guitar riff <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: well let's break it down right mm-hmm. like opto reminds you of like optic right and mm-hmm. so light and genetics. And it's this technology where you can use light to like turn on and off genes and brain activity in very specific brain cells. Caveat, this is only in mice. Okay. Wow. <laughs> no one is hooking this up to humans right mm-hmm. now, and, like firing light in your brain. Um, but what we can learn from doing this in animals is now we can activate both where and when, mm-hmm. right? Because you can... use genetics to make sure that this light is only sensitized in certain areas of the brains, that's the where. And because you are actively shining light on the brain and looking at the response, you get this millisecond level accuracy. Mm -hmm. So this is finally getting us to the where and when of brain responses. Um, And so this is giving us a new understanding of how emotions actually work in the brain. And so using this kind of technique, we're starting to learn exactly what are the brain circuits that are involved in things like fear or aggression Mm. or reward and things like that. Um, So this is really helping us understand where and when and how we feel emotions in the brain. And the idea is that hopefully this will lead to more specific treatments for uh, mental disorders. And so earlier this year, there was some really exciting research coming out of Stanford um, that really combined electrical stimulation uh, with neuroimaging that helped the scientists apply that electrical stimulation to an individual patient's specific brain areas, right? So it's not just one size fits all Mm -hmm. anymore, right? And so being able to experiment with that that level of personalization and being able to adjust, you know, dosage in real time um, is starting to give us some really promising results.
0: So we're learning, like, I mean, I guess we already knew this to a certain extent, but, like, you feel different emotions Literally in different areas of your brain. Yeah,
2: it's complicated. It's not like, you know, this is the fear station. <laughs> right. or Like, this is the joy station, right? right. You have these circuits.
0: Because I'm thinking about, like, psychology class in high school and learning about the frontal lobe. You know, Phineas Gage, I think it was, right? And we learned that the frontal lobe was impulse control and your, you know, anger or whatever. And uh, yeah, I guess it makes sense that every other emotion has to live somewhere, right?
2: Yeah, and luckily now that we have this new technology and we're not only relying on these case studies of, you know, (laughs) we don't need a hot rod to go through someone's (laughs) head. Uh, You know, we're learning that these networks are complicated and there's some overlap between different emotions, but then there are other regions that seem to be associated with one emotion over another. You know, the short answer, it's a lot more complicated than we thought.
1: Yeah, sounds complicated.
0: Yeah. So hopefully science will have the ability that we can talk to our animals soon and find out what they're feeling. That's what I really want (laughs) to (laughs)
2: know. Talk to your pets, see what you think. (laughs) How are you feeling today?
1: (laughs) I already do that stuff. Thanks so much to Jayatri for being here.
0: Is there literally any better moment in this recording studio than any time Jayatri comes in?
1: Oh no, she's the bad
0: I honestly feel bad for the fact that this is only on audio and that we don't film these yet because <laughs> the audience doesn't get to see what a badass Jayatri is.
1: She she has a strut, she strolls in. <laughs> I'm here.
0: If they came to me and they were like, We love you, Kirsten, but like we're gonna replace you as the host, it's gonna be Jayatri, I'd be like, I get it. <laughs> that's fair. So let's take a look at the emotional side of emotions. Our next guest is a former clinical social worker. Bree Wildow, welcome to So Curious. Can you introduce yourself, Bree, and tell us a little bit about what you do?
3: So I think how I landed here is that I am a licensed clinical social worker. I train in and practice modern psychoanalysis. And that said, I don't have a clinical career at this time. I spent many years running social services in a psychiatric hospital.
1: Well, with your background in social work, that position could be such a broad term. Can you define your role and some of the things that you do in a day-to-day?
3: I do experience design. That means for anyone who produces a product or service or experience, I help them to figure out what it should be or help them create it. So sometimes that looks like uh, workshopping or prototyping or researching or testing. Mm -hmm. Uh, That work, I think I, I learned how to do that work as a social worker when I was in the hospital. I was managing thousands of patients coming into and out of the hospital, and that meant a very rapid and very thorough 360-degree assessment of them and whatever brought them into the hospital, then identifying how we would offer treatment and creating a plan and then managing a team on that plan.
0: When you say clinical, what would be the work of clinical, like you said? You're on the floor, essentially, right?
3: I was, yes. Yeah, got So it. in that context, it was a freestanding psychiatric hospital where I worked. So all of the patients were going to be admitted for inpatient. Nobody came for therapy and went home the same day. Mm-hmm. And there were no patients there with any physical concerns, it was all psychiatric. So anyone who's going to be in that hospital Mm. needs to be at a level of acuity where they cannot safely be outside of the hospital. So Mm. it's a really high level of security, oversight, and um, protection slash imposition to freedom of movement. In a situation like a psychiatric hospital for inpatient treatment like this, The goal is to get the patient out of the hospital as quickly as possible because we want to stabilize whatever brought them in and then get them back out to a life Mm. and connect them with somebody who's going to be their treatment team ongoing.
1: Let's switch into emotions a little bit, right? Like we all have them, we all feel them. Why can it be so hard for us to maybe express them and identify them?
3: It has to do with whether we've practiced it and whether it's been role modeled. So Mm. No one is born able to express or identify anything. And that which they become good at expressing and identifying has a lot to do with the culture and climate and influences around them. And not everybody is teaching that or role modeling that.
1: Is emotional intelligence like an actual real term or is that something that we just throw around a lot? Can you talk about like that whole uh, connectivity between identifying and then it translating into real world space? And, and, Mm. And is that emotional intelligence?
3: What I think you're describing I want to talk about is emotional self-regulation, the ability to coexist with the feelings and sensations that are coming up. Uh, Some people are more sensitive than others. Some people are more practiced at self-regulation than others. So those are a couple of ingredients. Like how easily are you activated and then how well do you tolerate activation and what do you do in the face of activation? Mm. So that is the thing that I think can be taught or trained practicing tolerating discomfort and practicing coexisting with it role modeling the message that emotional or psychic discomfort is normal and common and difficult to tolerate for
1: everyone and it's everywhere Mm. language and and conversations have like evolved around our emotions, would you say our our language is evolving in in, in a more positive and healthy space?
3: Absolutely, yes. Our languages and our cognizance of this Mm. as a topic. I think becoming more open to this as a topic is relatively new. Mm -hmm. So we know, for example, statistics, like more people say their employers are sensitive to mental health, Mm. or more people say their employers are offering mental health resources. I don't think we're yet at a place of knowing which of those resources being offered are the most impactful or really if it's doing any good. Things certainly point to there is more conversation, there are more products and services and mental health days and self-care mm. things. You know, one of the things that's come along with increased discussion about wellness and mental health is this idea that distress is bad and you shouldn't feel distress. Yeah. And I am all for supporting people who are experiencing impairment and distress, particularly when their level of something like, say, anxiety or depression or low mood or fill in the blank, like when someone's experience of suffering is causing impairment, I'm all for offering support. I don't love pathologizing the idea that someone is responding emotionally to something or anxious or depressed or any one of those things that we want to go treat. You know, there's sort of this idea in therapy that if you offer someone a tissue too quickly when they start crying, you subtly give them the message that you shouldn't be doing that and clean that right up. Mm. And I don't care for that type
0: of messaging. Okay. I have been in therapy since I was like seven or eight years old. I have never heard that before. That's so interesting. Yeah, it sends like a subtle message like, here, take this. You're... You're a mess right now.
1: Like, stop. It kind of has the same hand motion almost. Like.
3: You're ex- <laughs> yeah. Totally exactly. It can have that. Yeah. Like, so, this is not to say I don't have tissues? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. get the but Kleenex. Your point about body language, I guess we're not visible, but is spot on. The attitude or the milieu from which the offering of tissue comes kind of matters. And mm. uh, something I think that's interesting about that in, in a conversation about the conversation about mental health is that that's sort of like a cultural and climactic factor mm. that. That type of climactic factor can create a vibe that doesn't necessarily get to the level of clinical mental illness, but a culture of wellness and tolerance for sensitivity wants to involve cognizance of the way you're being perceived when you do something like gesture dismissively or ask someone to tidy up what they're doing so it doesn't sellier wow area. Mm-hmm. I, no i love that thank you yeah, for offering that sure. and, and,
1: and you mentioned therapy a couple of times so what exactly or can you break down the functionality of therapy and why do we go to therapists to work through some emotions
3: because people need people to hold space for them and witness their experience of emotions discomfort the daily blah, 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 fill in the blank, like what it is is not an important so much as that the, the functionality and mechanism of being beheld by another, tolerated and in a safe space to have all the feelings. The therapeutic relationship is not like a friend. And a very important way that it's not is that it has a frame and a definition <laughs> that is devoted only to the clinical hour and it's not reciprocal and the patient is the center. And... The other baggage and expectations that come with a friendship aren't a factor. Mm. That matters
0: tremendously. So I know that nowadays, like you said, you work with businesses. I'm curious because I hear this all the time now, all over like TikTok and Instagram, people talking about how their companies are always pushing like our culture, our company culture, like we're doing things. For you, which is like amazing. That's, you know, what you want in a company. Then I also hear pushback when sometimes they're a little irrelevant things. You know, when you hear people being like, oh, we asked for a raise and they gave us a, a vending machine that has sushi in it. You know, <laughs> it's like, hey, that's cool too. That's good. I like sushi yeah, too. Yeah. But you know, in your experience, how do you think that businesses can become more emotionally conscious mm. with their culture?
3: I think it takes time and presence and resources and role modeling The problem with sushi, when you're not getting enough money, (laughs) is that you can't pay your rent with sushi, Mm -hmm. and also that if somebody offers you sushi when you need to pay rent, it feels like you're not being listened to. Mm -hmm. That is dehumanizing. And so there is no statement that someone can make that they're going after caring for you if they then mismatch what they offer. There needs to be time and role modeling put into figuring out what people need listening responding and then i think in places where there isn't a culture already lent to emotional intelligence for example if that's a thing that a, a company wants to go after there needs to be regular ongoing training and practica with the people in leadership who are going to let it trickle down it's not the kind of thing that can be sort of installed in in a seminar and then now you've had the education and now you know and you go off and you're supposed to institute it there needs to be mirroring and reinforced enacting of these behaviors in the culture from on high Mm. as a practice so that they become second nature. And I think often a lot of what you're hearing with, they say they're offering us additional resources Mm. is that like they came up with the first intervention they could throw at people or, I mean, I really can't speak to the processes, Mm. but as I said earlier, we are early on in figuring out the best way for companies to support folks. And you're giving examples of ways that people are, are not hitting the mark
0: it always makes me laugh when I see all these memes and posts about company culture. Companies, some of them using that term for good and some of them using that term because it's like a blanket. You know, like if we say culture, it makes us seem like we are. So Go
1: back to the language, right? Like people kind of throw things around, which is why I was, you know, hoping that you can clarify certain things just because we we say so many different things and just toss words around quite a bit. I want to ask you if holding space for other people's emotions and feelings and beholding them, can that help with One's own, or would you, you know, advise no?
3: That's a really nice question, and I don't think that there's a one-size-fits-all answer, because the way in which you might experience somebody processing aloud with you is not the same as another person would, and depending on your relationship with them or the stuff they're talking about, it could be very triggering to you. And if you can't tolerate it, or if it's gonna blow you up or damage you, or it's not gonna work. I would never advise that you should do it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you have the capacity and or you find that it gets you out of your own head to be there for someone else, it can be great for them and for you. There's not, I mean to answer that, I would look for how is it impacting me? Thinking about doing it or actually doing it, check in with your own experience and figure out whether you can tolerate it.
1: Right.
0: First time I heard one of my therapists say that they had a therapist and I was like, so therapists have therapists? Like it's an innately human thing yeah, to yeah. need to talk, right? No matter how much you've learned about mental health, you know?
1: Yeah. And I, I recently ran into the concept of a therapist not being good for you. Like in my mind, if you talk to a therapist, you're good. You're golden. They're mm. awesome. Just talk to a therapist. Any one. But um, <laughs> yeah, like some therapy may not be the best for you. Can you talk more about that? Like the kind of interacting with emotions that may not be the best?
3: I think therapy is better than no therapy in most cases as a blanket statement that said there are different types of approaches to therapy and not everybody is well suited for either a type of approach or for an individual i can imagine a situation with certain types of therapeutic relationships where a poking or an uncomfortable moment happened and then there's an opportunity to talk about it and have sort of a corrective emotional experience but that doesn't always happen and as far as advice around this Everybody's going to have different needs. So I think it's really important to, if you're thinking about therapy, talk to some people, test out how it feels, test out a few, ask them things that you want to ask, even to suggest that you should ask about X, Y, or Z isn't necessarily going to scratch your itches. And I think it's important to be able to voice your concerns and like get into a comfortable space and relationship for therapy in order for any of the follow-on work to happen.
0: Any final thoughts for the people listening? A personal belief that I have that
3: I think I wanna leave with is that it's all the feelings are okay. Mm. All of the behaviors may have follow-on effects, but I think like what I feel is most important in beholding another person or giving space for someone is that space is given for whatever they bring in. And I, I hope that wherever possible, that is a component of therapy spaces, and relationships.
1: Bree Wildow, thank you so much for coming on a Soul Curious podcast. We appreciate you.
0: Thank you, Bree. It was great to meet you. It's great to meet you. Thank you very much for having (laughs) me. Thank you. All right, well, let's do another check-in. We're talking about the emotional side of emotional emotions. Bae, how are you feeling now that we've talked with Jayatri and Bree?
1: I'm feeling a little bit more settled into the idea of experiencing emotions. Emotions can sometimes... Pop up on you you don't know where they come from it mm-hmm. could be a little wild so I, I just feel a little bit more thoughtful about it and like i understand that you know we're talking about our nervous system we're talking about signals being sent mm-hmm. from a nerve ending to another that's a good one i feel
0: very grateful after this conversation with brie and I'm also super excited for the rest of the season.
1: I'm super excited about this season as well. So many good insights and fun people that we're going to be talking to mm-hmm. about stress, anxiety, depression, and so on and so forth, all the fun stuff.
0: It's really just therapy for Bay and I, and you all just get to listen. We need
1: it. <laughs> well, next week, we're going to be looking at how identity and mental health intersect.
2: With Black men, I think we kind of deal with that inadvertent pressure on ourselves,
0: right? This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet. Radio Kismet is Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson and Emily Cherish of Radio Kismet. This podcast is also produced by Joy Montefusco, Jayatri Das, and Aaron Armstrong of the Franklin Institute. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. Our assistant producer is Seneca White. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger, and our audio editor is Lauren DeLuca. Our graphic designer is Emma Seeger.
1: I'm the Bull Bay.
0: And I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills.
1: See you next week. Go
0: Birds!